Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. You know, one of the things that I value or that I hold very highly when it comes to my role as pastor is while in the pulpit and preaching, I think that the best way is to, to do what we do. We, we pick a book of the Bible and we go through verse by verse. And there's, there's many reasons or several reasons why I think that. One, I think it helps us to comprehend the book. We kind of see the book as a whole. We kind of see the themes that run throughout the book. We just kind of, when you're looking at more of, uh, of like Paul's letters rather than a story, you see the arguments that are being made. You see the flow and the structure. I think that that's value in, there's value in that. Secondly, I think that one, it's how we, where we read and study the book the way that we're, we're meant to read and study the book. When you sit down and open up a book and you begin to read it, you don't read page 1 and then jump over to page 17 and then page 130 and then back to page 27. You read it through the book. And so rather than just jumping around to a bunch of different verses, this way we get to, to read it the way it was written, the way that it was meant to, uh, to be read and studied. Third, I think that there's value in it because once the book is, is picked, and I pray about the book and kind of see the direction I think God is leading us in, but then each Sunday, it's God and His words that drives our services and that drives our sermon. It's not me, it's not my wisdom, it's not my creativity, uh, of which I really don't have any, but it's, it's, it's God's word, it's God's will and how He wrote it that kind of drives the direction of our church. And then another reason why I think it's a, a very beneficial for us is sometimes you cover things that you would not typically cover, whether it's because it's an awkward, an awkward topic or, or a heavy topic or maybe just something that you don't think that just typically need to hit. And so this morning, we're, we're covering one of those topics. We're going to be looking at this week and next week, the idea of divorce, not the idea of divorce, but divorce. Uh, Jesus is teaching and he is asked by a Pharisee a question about divorce. He answers that question. And so we're going to answer that question as well. But before we can look at divorce, I think we've got to look at marriage. I think that's what Jesus does as well. So this morning, we're going to really focus in on marriage and on uh, what God's heart is for marriage. And then the next week, we'll look at all the, the details about divorce. But this, this morning, we're going to see what God's Word has to say about marriage. And here's the first thing. God loves marriage. God does. God created marriage. We talked about a covenant with the kids. God created marriage to be a covenant. It's agreement between two people uh, made before God that says we are going to love one another. We are going to be committed to one another. We are joining in a relationship, and we are going to stay together. And we've talked about this, but there's a difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract says we're coming together, but as soon as one of us breaks our side of the contract, the contract is null and void. A covenant says as soon as one person breaks their side of the contra, the covenant, the covenant stays together because it's based on something bigger than trust or mistrust. It's based on love. It's based on commitment. It's based on saying we are doing this regardless. And so God loves marriage. In fact, God officiated the first marriage in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, I read the wrong, I put the wrong verse up there and I read the wrong verse. I apologize. Later on in Genesis chapter 2, 
It's talking about Adam and Eve, and it says Adam and his wife. And so what we see there is that it didn't call them Adam and Eve. It said the man and his wife, that they are, they are joined together. And the only person that could have joined them together that had the authority, that had the ability to join them together as husband and wife, and not just first man and first woman, was God. The animals couldn't do it. Adam couldn't do it himself. And so God officiated the very first marriage in the Garden of Eden, bringing Adam and Eve together. As he created these two new beings, Adam from the clay, Eve from Adam's rib. He brought them together, not just in a relationship, but he brought them together in a marriage, husband and wife. Uh, We also see that God uses marriage to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says this, For I feel divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, this is God talking to the church, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Here, Jesus or God is talking about or using Paul to talk about the, the relationship between Jesus and the church. And the church, that is us. That is Christians. We are the bride of Christ. And so uh, God values marriage so much that when he takes this relationship between his son and the church, he uses the terminology, he uses the illustration of marriage to show its value, to show its relationship, and to show its importance. God created marriage, and God loves marriage. So, let's look at Mark chapter 10. I tell you what, we're going to read verses 1 through 12, but this morning we're only going to look at verses 1 through 10. Then we'll look at 11 and 12 next week. But I just kind of want us to read it because it's all kind of the same story. So let's look at verses 1 through 12. We'll pray, and then we're going to work our way through the passage. It says this, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you've given us. Uh, God, I pray that as we begin to look at the idea of marriage, God, this, this great institution that you have given us, Father God, that we would see your heart behind marriage, why you gave it to us, why you have created marriage. And Father God, we would be able to see uh, what you desire in a marriage. Father God, I just pray that you would speak louder through your spirit and through your word, God, that my feeble voice ever could. We love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, first that we see in verse 2 is there's an attempt made to discredit Jesus' ministry and limit his influence. So it tells us in verse 1 that uh, as was his custom, he went to a new area and he began to teach. And then while he's teaching, one of the Pharisees basically kind of raises his hand to ask a question. And it says the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I want us to understand this. 
The Pharisees are not asking this because they care about the answer, because they are trying to gain understanding, or they want to know what God's will on the concept of marriage and divorce is. They're asking this because, as it says, they want to test him. They kind of want to trip him up. You see, within the Pharisees, within the, the Pharisees were the, they were the religious leaders of the Israelites. They were the teachers. They were the, the pastors and the preachers. And so within the Pharisees, there was uh, kind of two separate wings or two separate divisions when it came to the idea of divorce. There was the more conservative side, which said the only reason you should be allowed to get divorced is uh, because of adultery. Then you had the more liberal side, which said you should be able to get divorced for any reason you want to. In fact, uh, records show that they even allowed for divorce or said that you should be able to get a divorce if your wife cooked a bad meal or if you found, if a man found a more desirable woman. That really any reason to get a divorce was a good reason, according to this sect. And so as the Pharisees come upon Jesus... Not only do the Pharisees have this thought, but as they have these thoughts, and they are the teachers, the people of Israel, now it's not a great division, but they have different views when it comes to divorce and, and marriage, and so, or marriage and divorce. And so with them asking Jesus this question and trying to put him to the test, their goal is they don't want to understand what God thinks about this. They don't want to understand what Jesus thinks about this. They want him to lose some followers. So if he says that, hey, you should only get divorced, there is adultery, then all these people who think that you should be able to get divorced no matter what, they're going to quit liking him, or they're going to quit following him. They're not going to listen to him anymore because he's going to upset them. Same way, if he says you should get divorced for any reason, then these over here that believe a divorce only in the, uh, in the area of adultery, they're going to get mad, so they're not going to follow him. So they're hoping, they're hoping they can split his influence. They're hoping that they can split those who are listening to him and following him. And then not only that, but there's a slim chance in the back of their mind, they're thinking, you know what? If he comes out against divorce, remember what happened to John the Baptist. Remember what happened to John the Baptist. We've looked at the story a couple of chapters ago in the book of Mark. John the Baptist came out and was speaking against Herod and speaking against Herod's divorce and remarriage and everything that went there. And John the Baptist ended up getting beheaded because he offended Herod and Herod's wife in his publicly preaching against their divorce. So they're also thinking, not only might he lose some followers, but if we're lucky, Herod's going to catch wind of this and maybe what happened to John the Baptist will happen to Jesus and we'll get rid of him once and for all. Remember the Pharisees did did not like Jesus. So they asked this question not because they actually cared or wanted to know, but they asked this question because they're trying to, to find any way they can to limit Jesus' impact and influence and hopefully to get rid of him. All right, so verse 3, Jesus responds. He says, what did Moses command you? Now here's what we see. We see that Jesus set scripture as the guideline for our morality. Jesus set Scripture as the guideline for our morality with this question. Now, Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He goes back to Scripture. He goes back to, or He doesn't give them the answer that they want. He answers, but He goes back to the Word of God. Now, this is what we need to, to, to get from this. Scripture is our standard. When it comes to morality, when it comes to right and wrong, when it comes to good and bad, when it comes to what we say honors God or doesn't honor God, when it comes to what we say is moral or immoral, we are not the judges of that. In fact, our culture is not the judge of that. Uh, other leaders are not the judge of that. 
God is the only one who is perfectly righteous. God is the only one who is perfectly holy. God is the only one who has never sinned. And God is our creator. So God has decided what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is moral, what is immoral. And he has given that to us in his word. And so Jesus does not go back to to popular opinion. He does not go back to the rabbinical teachings uh, and the the popular teachings of the day. He does not go to what the culture says. He goes, what did Moses command you? Now, what he's referring to is Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Very important in the Jewish faith. And within that is the law given in Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy. And so... He's saying, what is given to you in the law? The things that God has already spoken on, what has God said? When it comes to, when it comes to the idea of morality and right and wrong, so often if we take a stand or if anyone takes a stand on anything, there's always another group, no matter what stand you take for morality or for righteousness, there's always someone else that's going to say, well, who are you to tell me what's right? Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Who are you to judge me? It's a common phrase that I'm sure most of you have heard. And in reality, we're no one. I'm not anyone to, I'm not someone to judge anyone else. In fact, the good thing, the great thing, the freeing thing about basing our morality on God's word and not ourselves is that it it relieves us of an incredible burden. Because if we decide what is good and what is right, if we decide what is moral and what is immoral, and if we place ourselves in that authority, then that means we have to uphold that rule perfectly. And if we don't, then that rule, that that moral standard crumbles. And so if we were the ones going around setting the rules for what is good, what is moral, what is right, then that places a huge burden on us of perfection in those areas. And what we understand about humanity is we're not perfect in really any area of life. We are are sinners who, who are desperately in need of God's grace. The freeing thing about trusting God's standard, that trusting God is the one who sets righteousness, God is the one who sets what is right and what is wrong, is He is the only one who is perfectly capable of keeping every standard that He has set. He is perfect. He is sinless. If He has said, thou shalt not lie, and lying is bad, then that means He has never told a lie, and He is the only one who can perfectly keep that. The standard for what is right and what is wrong is not based on me and how good I am or you or how good you are or our culture or how good it is. The standard is based on God and His Word. And the freeing thing is that then I can therefore stand up here in a pulpit and say, the Bible says one of the Ten Commandments. I can break out my phone and look at them. I can show them to you. But the, 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 the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not lie. And guess what? In my life I have lied. In my life, there have been times when I purposely chose not to tell the truth, to tell a falsehood. For whatever the reason is, I have done that. And I can sit up here and say, thou shalt not lie. Not because I'm perfect. Not because I've perfectly kept that law, but because God has perfectly kept that law. Because God has given that law, He has given that rule, He has given that commandment, and He has perfectly kept that. So that is a commandment, that is a truth, not based on me, but based on Him and His Word. And that is freeing because if it were based on me, then I'd be walking around with all these incredible weights sitting on me, having to keep everything perfectly, which I know that I can't do. 
And so Jesus takes things back to Scripture. And what this does, too, is it reminds us of why we need the gospel. Because we cannot perfectly keep God's rules. We cannot perfectly keep God's standard. In fact, even if you look at the Ten Commandments, that's only ten rules. We've broken some of those, at least one of them. Everyone in this room has. And so if we cannot perfectly keep even ten rules then for us to have salvation, for us to measure up to God's standard, we need someone else. We need someone who measured up to that standard. That's what Jesus Christ did. Then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could stand with God as his children. Once again, not based on our ability to keep his law and to keep his word, but based on what Jesus has already done to keep his law and to keep his word. All right, so Jesus set Scripture as the guideline for our morality. Next, we see with the, uh, the Pharisees in their response, we see a misuse and misapplication of, of God's Word can lead us to justify sin rather than run from it. So verse 4 and 5, they respond after Jesus asked that question, what did Moses say? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And we're going to look at that in just a second. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The passage that they're referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. So if you got your Bible, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, or 24, sorry. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Now understand, as Moses gave them this, as God gave them this in the law, Moses wrote it down. This was given as a, a basically a legal pathway for divorce. When this was given, this was not given as a blessing for divorce. This was not given as, hey, go ahead and get divorced. It's a good thing. In fact, there are no qualifications given here for divorce. And the reason is, or one of the reasons is, because if you back up in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it tells us that if someone is caught having an, adult, or having an adulterous affair, then both the man and the woman are to be carried outside the city and to be stoned and to be killed. So adultery was not even an, an option for divorce because adulterers were uh, put to death. This is Old Testament. We don't, we don't do that anymore. And so let's look at Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found, he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out, out of his house, uh, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, uh, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, when you read that passage, the whole idea here is, well, Jesus tells them, look, the reason why you were given that passage, the reason why this kind of section was placed in the law was because of your hardness of heart. It was placed in there because you are sinners. It was placed in there because humanity, uh, because of our sinfulness, there are going to be times when we battle with our obedience to God. There are going to be times when we battle with rebellion against God. Even as Christians, there are times when we battle with our obedience and we battle with our faithfulness. But especially the Israelites, he goes, look, you are 
more hard-hearted. In fact, if you remember in the kids' video that they just watched, Moses told the, the, uh, the Israelites, look, y'all are not going into the promised land because you're righteous. You're going into the promised land because God made a promise to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. In fact, y'all are a stubborn or a stiff-necked or a hardened, a hard heart uh, group. And so this law was given there According to Jesus, what Jesus is telling us is it was given there because of the sinfulness of the people. Because God understood that as though He created marriage to be a relationship that lasts until death, there were going to be some of the Israelites who would not follow God's command. And so He knew as these laws that He were setting up, some of the laws were religious and moral, some of the laws were legal. There had to be a legal pathway for this to happen so that women could be protected and so that marriage could in some form Uh, still be upheld, even if people were getting a divorce. So the irony here is this. This commandment was put into place because of man's sinfulness. And yet here the Pharisees have taken this commandment and used it as an excuse to get divorced anytime you wanted to. Bad meal, you find somebody else, whatever your reasoning was. And so they took a commandment that Jesus said was placed there because it reveals your sinfulness, and they used it to justify even more and more sin. They completely missed the point, and it led them to move farther and farther away from God and His commands and His plans and His purposes. As Christians, and we're going to chase just a little rabbit here for a second. As Christians, as we handle God's Word, as we read God's Word, as we have God's Word taught to us in Sunday school or in service in church, our goal is never to try to justify our sin before God. Our goal is never to say, okay, God, I understand that you've said lying is is, is a sin, but let me tell you why I've lied and let me tell you why it's okay. We do not justify, our, we, we should not justify our sin before God and try to convince God why our sin is okay. When God tells us not to lie, and if we have been lying, then our response is not, hey God, let me justify why I've been doing this. My response should be, God, you're right. I've broken your standard. I've broken your commandment. I agree with you that this was sinful, that this was wrong. God, please forgive me. But because we are humans, there are times when If we're not careful, instead of conforming to God's Word, we'll try to make God's Word conform to our life. And that's what the Pharisees did here. They said, look, this commandment or this this passage, it it does not command uh, divorce. It never allows for it, or it never says divorce is a good thing. It never gives reasons for divorce. It says, if you get divorced, basically here's how you do it. It's just a legal commandment showing how divorce is to be handled, but it's never commanded. commanded. It's never said okay. In fact, you never see in the Old Testament again in the law any passage that says anything that it's okay to get divorced. In fact, every other time in the Old Testament that you see divorce mentioned, it's It's given in reasons why you should not give divorce. In in Deuteronomy, it says, hey, if this happens, uh, then you are to get married and never get divorced. You cannot get divorced. Divorce is not an option for you. And then when it talks about the the Levites and the priests in uh, the book of Leviticus, it says that they are not to uh, be divorced or or marry a divorced woman. And so those are the other times uh, the divorce is mentioned in the giving of the law. 
And so what, what God is saying here is, or what Jesus is saying here, what the Bible is telling us, is that yes, divorce was mentioned in the Old Testament, but not because God was saying, hey, go do this. He's saying, because I understand your sinfulness, this is going to happen. And if this is happening, here's how you're to do it. And yet they took that and said, well, God has told us that basically we can go get divorced for any reason we want to. And that's not the case. They've twisted God's word. And instead of submitting to God's word, they used it to justify sin, which is completely the opposite thing God wants us to do with his word and with his truth. Okay, so now we're going to get to the the good stuff. Now we're going to see God's heart for marriage in verses 6 through 9. Verse 6 through 9, let's just read it again real fast. It says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, he starts off in verse 6 with the word but. And so that's showing us a contrast between the idea of divorce and what God wants. And so you've got divorce, and then contrasting with that is God's heart for marriage and God's will. So first thing that we see is God's heart for marriage has not changed since creation. Verse 6 starts off, it says, but from the beginning of creation. And then he goes in and he talks about uh, Adam and Eve. And he talks about uh, uh, men and women leaving their, uh, their, their, their parents and joining together and becoming one flesh. From the beginning of creation, this has been God's plan. From the beginning of creation, God's plan for marriage has always been that it lasts. God's plan has not changed. God's heart for marriage has not changed. There was never a time when God said, you know what? Here's this idea of marriage I've got. Let's go ahead and switch and say everyone should get uh, divorced or divorce is a good thing. Let's celebrate divorce. And now we're going to go back to where divorce is bad and it's only marriage. No, God's plan has always been for marriage to last. That has always been God's heart. Ever since the time of creation, ever since time for us started and began, this has been God's plan and it has not changed. All right, the second part of verse 6 says this. God made them male and female. What we're going to see here is that creation shows God's plan for marriage to be purposeful. He says, God created them male and female. God created them different, but with a plan and a purpose for coming together. And so the idea of marriage is you have a man and you have a woman. They come together. They create a new life. They, they, they join together to be husband and wife. And God did this for a purpose. God did this for a reason. God created them differently because one, emotionally and and just personally, husbands and wives complement each other. There are ways that when uh, when Jessica and I got married where uh, I was uh, stronger than she was or different than she was, and she was different or stronger than I was. And then as we've been married uh, seven years God has used her to encourage me and to strengthen me and sanctify me. And and God has used me to do the same thing for her. We have come into each other's lives. And as our lives have grown together, uh, God has used us to build us up and to make us better, stronger people. So God took two things that were different and used us to, used each of us in the marriage to, to make us stronger, to make us better, to build us up. So there's also a a practical reason. God made men and women different because God's plan was for men and women to be used to populate the earth. Genesis 1.28 
It says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds and the heavens, and over every living thing that moves about the earth. God created man and woman to be able to come together to create other men and women, to create babies so they would grow up, so they would create babies, so they would grow up, so that, so that the human race could spread, so that humanity could grow, so that more and more people could be made. That was God's plan. And so God's plan for marriage is for men and women to come together to, to complement and to build each other up, and for men and women to come together to, to populate the earth and build the human race. Anything other than man and woman goes against God's creation. Look, if, if God wanted to make gender fluid, he could have. He's God. There's nothing outside of his ability. If God wanted to make it uh, to men or to women, God could have done that as well, if that were God's plan. But it's not. God had a very specific plan, a very specific purpose. Understand, God is not a God of chaos. God does not... Uh, do something and then think about it later. Or God doesn't do something without thinking about how everything plays out. God is perfect. And so God has a plan for everything and a purpose for everything that he does. And God's plan and purpose was for creation was this is how biology works. This is how creation works. This is how the human race will prosper and move forward. Now, Understand, I don't want to beat up on anyone and understand that the church's responsibility is anyone who comes to us or anyone that God places in our path, we are to love and embrace with the grace of Jesus Christ. No matter their views on sexuality, no matter their views on gender, no matter what they think, what they practice, we are to love because that's what God has called us to do. But at the same time, we cannot take that which goes against God's purpose and God's creation and call it natural or call it good. We have to stand on God's truth and God's word once again. Remember, Jesus sent us back to God's commandments. We go back to God as our standard bearer. But we also do so with love and grace and compassion. All right, next in verse 7. We see that marriage creates a new relationship. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It says, the idea that, that um, I heard a pastor friend of mine once called leave and cleave. You leave your family and you cleave to your new spouse. And the idea here is in the Jewish culture, family was incredibly important. Children or, or sons and daughters would live with their parents until marriage. You know, sometimes now we move off. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 19 or 20 and lived by myself, having roommates here and there, but not living with a woman until I got married to Jessica when I was almost 31. And so that wouldn't have happened in their culture. I would have stayed at my parents' house until I was 30 or almost 31, until I got married. And so what he's saying here is, look, when you get married, you leave your family. You leave their protection. You leave their responsibility. You leave their authority. And you are creating a new relationship. You are creating a new family. You and your spouse, the husband and wife, are coming together. And the, 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 the wife is trading the, the responsibility and the authority that the, that the father had in that household to, to the to the husband that, that he is now responsible for providing and protecting. That which was the father's job is now the, the husband's job. And there's been this, this transfer of position. There's been this transfer that is not saying that you can't 
still visit your parents or anything like that, but when it comes to responsibilities, when it comes to working things out, when it comes to, to living together and loving each other and creating rules for your marriage and, and how your marriage is to look and what's the direction of your marriage and your family, mom and dad don't decide that anymore. You come together and decide that as husband and wife. This is a brand new relationship. You leave your mother and father and you cling to each other. You leave their authority. You leave the responsibility that they're no longer responsible for you in the same way they were. And now you and your husband, you and your wife are together and y'all are this brand new relationship, this brand new family that will begin to branch out, create new little children, and your family will grow. The idea for marriage is not that we stay with our parents and we stay under the authority of the parents. And so the the parents continue to tell the the kids, even though they're married, how to live. But the parents have to give up that, that authority and the kids have to give up that mooching off of mom and dad and, and become their own thing. And that can be tough. Look, I know I've got three little girls one day Three little punks are going to come and, and ask to uh, marry my little girls, and I'm going to have Jay's crossbow with me, and I'm going to have to make a decision to, to say, look, I'm going to let y'all go, and y'all are going to be your own family. I'm going to let you leave. I'm transferring authority. I'm transferring uh, responsibility uh, for you as my daughter to this, this guy. I don't, I don't think about stuff like that. And there's this transfer, there's this new relationship that is created, this new relationship that grows together. Next, in verse 8, we see that marriage creates a new intimacy. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one flesh, but two. Or no longer two flesh, or no longer two, but one flesh. There's a a kind of a neat aspect of marriage that that not only you're creating a a, a new relationship, but there's this new uh, intimacy between husband and wife. There's this new, uh, almost this new being that is created. He says you're no longer two individuals, but you've come together to create this new thing, this new creation. And so often you see in marriage, or you hear people talk about marriages, it's kind of two individuals that come together to kind of share life together, or, or almost live as, as roommates somehow. You still do all your stuff, and I'll still do all my stuff, and there's this separation. But what Jesus presents here is that the idea here is that you're coming together. So not that you can't still have your own hobbies or do your own things, but you're coming together as, this is not two separate individuals, but you are now one combined, uh, unified being. You are a a husband and wife. You are a a married couple. It's not two individual people. You come together. And this is why I think he's saying this and the idea that this presents. Marriage is not something that is to be viewed as, as, hey, I'm going to do this for a little bit and see how this works out. And if it gets too tough, if it gets too difficult, then I'm just going to jump out and go do something else. Or I'm going to hop out of this one and hop into another marriage. That the marriage is not something that we are just going from marriage to marriage, that we view it as flippantly like this. But he's saying that you look, you don't have two things anymore, but you've got one thing that has come together. And so we're not to view marriage as something that we just leave once things get tough. And, and yeah, look, marriage, marriage can be tough. Marriage has its, its ups and downs. There are times when marriage is, is just great and awesome, and there's times when marriage can, can be hard and can be difficult. 
But as, as believers, we are to show each other grace. We are to show each other mercy. We are to love each other even during those tough times. That, that covenant that we make, the beginning of marriage, most people vows talk about loving in the, in the good times and the bad times and the tough times and the hard times. And so that covenant stays because of the vows, because of the promise that we have made, and because that once we're married, we're no longer two, but we are one. There's a new intimacy. There's a new creation there. And when that creation gets broken apart by divorce, what it does is it begins to tear apart parts of who we are. And in the same way, let me just say this. The same is true of, uh, which is why I think he's talking about this, the same is true of, of sex. Physical intimacy is not something that is to be cheapened and, and just kind of jumped around from person to person or th- I guess person to person. It's not to be uh, something that we look at so flippantly that we just go from person to person seeking pleasure. Because when we're doing that, we're, we're taking something that God created to be special within the confines of marriage that is part of this idea of intimacy that brings us to be not two but one. And we're taking it and we're, we're misusing it in a way that does have uh, impact on the rest of our life. It does have impact on our other relationships. So this idea with marriage is God has created us to be come together, not as two, but as one. And in verse 9, we see this. God's heart for marriage is commitment. It says, therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This one flesh, this new creation, this new relationship is not to be separated. God's heart for marriage is that we love each other and we stay committed. Now, next week we're going to look at the, the allowances that the Bible does give for divorce. But understand this, even though there are allowances given, God's heart is still grace and forgiveness. Remember, Ephesians tells us to, to forgive others as we have been forgiven. So God's God's heart is still, if I were to cheat on Jessica, God's heart for Jessica is that Jessica would forgive me and that Jessica would show me the same grace that God has shown her and that she would, that, that she would accept me back as her husband. Now, I understand that's not easy. I understand that's difficult. I understand that's big, but I also understand that that's God's heart. God's heart for marriage is that marriage stays together, that it is a commitment. All right, so closing up, God's heart for marriage is relationship. God's heart for marriage is that we are coming together, we are sharing our life, we're becoming a new creation, a new creature. Together, we are encouraging one another, we are building one another up. We are no longer one, but two, or no longer two, but one. And God's heart is never divorce. In fact, Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce. And so, once again, we're going to look at this more in depth next week. But even though God gives allowances for divorce... God's heart is always forgiveness. God's heart is always grace. Though God gave allowances to the Israelites, God's heart was always that there would be forgiveness and grace and restoration and that marriages would stay together. Marriage is a great picture of God in the church, of Jesus in the church, is a picture of, of God's love for us, the idea of a covenant. We see throughout Scripture, uh, not just in the idea of marriage, but even God's relationship with us as believers. So marriage, 
Not only is it the relationship, but it's so much a picture of how God interacts with us and how God interacts with humanity and the commitments that God makes uh, with humanity and with us through salvation, through Jesus Christ. And so when we tear apart marriage, not only does it have earthly impacts for uh, relationships and everything else, but it also, um, it also does damage to the pictures that God uses it to show of His greatness and of His faithfulness and of His love. And so as Christians, if our goal is to glorify and worship God, then we hold marriage up high, not just because uh, there's some verses in the Bible that tell us to, which we do that. We want to love God, obey God, obey His commandments. But we also understand that the picture of marriage does so much to praise and worship God when we uh, forgive one another, when we move forward, when we stay committed, when that covenant stays together. And we understand when we break that apart that it robs God of that glory of what our lives are supposed to represent present and picture. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you've given us. God, we thank you for your love and your grace, Father God. We thank you for marriage. God, we thank you that you have created us to come together and share life with each other. And that can be tough, and there are times when that might be difficult. But Father God, we thank you that you take marriage and you use it to grow us and to mature us and to strengthen us and Father God, I just thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for all things and that nothing is done by accident um, and that you are a God who, who is in control and that you are a God who loves marriage and a God who made marriage. Father God, I don't know people's hearts out here. God, I don't know what couples are going through right now. I don't know uh, what goes on behind closed doors of houses, but you do. So, Father God, you know the, the marriages that need to be strengthened. You know the marriages that, that are on the verge of, of maybe not going in the best direction. Father God, I pray that you would use this time for recommitments, that you would use this time for forgiveness, God, that you would use this time for introspection and just seeing where our relationships with our spouses stand. And Father God, that we might strive to have marriages that, that glorify, that honor, and that magnify you. Uh, because you are great, because you are worthy, and because you are good. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Let me just say this. Yes, marriage is God's plan, and, and no, divorce is not. But at the same time, a divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Uh, there is grace to be shown, uh, and if you have uh, gotten divorced uh, in the past, then God's grace is there to forgive you and to wipe away that sin as He does every other sin. So uh, it's not something to, to have to hang your head about knowing that that's been forgiven and knowing that there is grace there. So uh, let me just leave you with that encouragement.